Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11, as we enter back into our semi-regular series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at all of Matthew chapter 11 today, 30 verses of it. We all know the story from the great film, Dorothy and Toto, Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, finally make it after following the Yellow Brick Road to the Emerald City, the home of the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, the one who holds all of Dorothy's hope for returning back to Kansas. And as they make their way through the, wizard, through the palace to the wizard's chamber, they, they walk into this large room and they see this terrifying, magnificent, enormous, floating head who begins speaking to them. The wizard himself appeared all that he was made up to be. He sure did seem to be great and powerful in that moment. He was brash and short and terrible and awesome and more He wasn't really willing to help Dorothy get back to Kansas. But Toto, wise Toto, knowing something was amiss, follows his senses to a corner in the back of the room where there's a curtain, and he grabs that curtain in his teeth and pulls it away to reveal that the wizard that they were speaking to was nothing more than a charlatan pulling levers and speaking through megaphones, putting on a show. It was a scandal if ever there was a scandal. The wizard was not who he pretended to be, not who he was assumed to be. And when the curtain was pulled back, all of Dorothy's hope of returning to Kansas was suddenly in peril. The wizard was no wizard at all. Great and powerful Oz was, in fact, more cowardly than the lion that Dorothy was with. Scandals like this litter and pepper our literary and cinematic experiences. All, there's even a show on TV called Scandal. But they also litter history as well. Even biblical history is littered with scandal. In fact, the coming of Christ was quite, quite likely the biggest of all scandals in Scripture. It's not scandalous because Christ claimed to be something he wasn't, like the wizard, It's scandalous because when Christ's identity as the promised Messiah is actually revealed, the very people who were waiting for him reject him outright. The scandal is not in his identity. The scandal is in the response to his true identity revealed. Christ's coming is scandalous because it forces all people to make a decision about whether they will accept Christ or whether they will reject him. There's Though in accepting Christ, great rest and great comfort to be found in faithfully following after Jesus. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 11. But for those who continue to walk in rejection of Christ, even knowing his identity, there is condemnation for those who walk in unrepentance, even after having seen the evidence of his lordship, the evidence of his identity. So as we turn to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to see this scandal in full force this morning. And I want to work through this chapter by asking four questions of four sections throughout the chapter. The first question is this, as we'll encounter in verses 1 through 6. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? What's his identity? Matthew 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that is John the Baptist, 
heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Chapter 11, verse 1, picks up where chapter 10 left off. In chapter 10, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions for this sort of uh, short-term mission trip that they're going to be on. As they go out in the cities, preaching the gospel, preaching the coming of the kingdom. Now, verse 1 says that Jesus himself went and did the same. In verses 2 and 3, we see that along the way, Jesus is approached by some of John the Baptist's disciples, some of his followers. John the Baptist is at this point in jail at the hand of Herod. You could flip forward to Matthew chapter 14 to see why he's in jail, uh, precisely because he had confronted King Herod about his illicit affair with his sister-in-law. Uh, and John said, you can't have your sister-in-law that way. And Herod said, watch me. And, uh, and Herod's sister-in-law, uh, through a course of events, said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod said, that sounds good to me. And so he had John arrested, and that's where John is now. John in prison awaiting execution, sends word to Jesus by way of his own disciples to ask, Jesus, was I confused about who and what I was proclaiming and pointing people to? Are you the Messiah or aren't you? If you are, that's great. I can die in peace. If not, tell me so, so I can tell my disciples to prepare, continue preparing the way for the disciples so we can wait for another, look for another. It's a fairly simple yes or no question, right? Are you or aren't you? And what's Jesus' response? Yep or nope? Neither, right? Jesus gives a complex answer to, to John's simple question. He doesn't just say yes or no. Instead, he says to the disciples, go back and tell John all of the evidences that you are witness to. What are those evidences, right? Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. These things are really cool things in and of themselves, but when we understand that what Jesus is saying to John's disciples is actually a reference to Old Testament scripture, Old Testament prophecy about what would happen in the day of the Messiah, then the evidence takes on a whole new tone altogether. In Isaiah chapter 28, 18 and 19, we have this message from the prophet Isaiah from the Lord about a new day of wonderful things when the Lord will do a new thing in Israel. Those verses say, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, a passage describing the coming of the Lord to come and to restore Zion, to restore Jerusalem, the people of Israel, to their rightful spiritual place, says this, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61.1, this is the same passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, <clears throat> and opening of the prison to those who are bound. John says, are you the Messiah or aren't you? And Jesus says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. He says, Isaiah 28, 35, Isaiah 61, have their fulfillment in the things that I'm doing. John, what do you think? 
And then Jesus, still not fully answering the question, but answering the question. In verse 6, he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That Greek word for offended is the Greek word skandalizo, which is the word from which we get our English word scandal, or to be scandalized, to be offended, to be uh, emotionally apprehended, to be embarrassed by something. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 says this. He will become, that is the Messiah, the promised one, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a stone of scandal, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus, in his response to the question by John the Baptist's disciples, is pointing to the evidence of his ministry. And that it has indeed been fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. And here he says, you are blessed if you see the evidence and you're not embarrassed by me. You are blessed if you see the evidence of my ministry and your association with me does not bring internal scandal and offense. There's happiness there. There's blessing there. Jesus' answer to John's question in his statement here in verse 6 creates a situation for John the Baptist. John the Baptist has got to do something with that answer. But Jesus' statement and his answer to John the Baptist also creates a situation for all of us today who are reading this text as well. The the Bible was never constructed to be understood as an entertaining collection of fictitious stories about a Jew from ancient Palestine. No, 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 no. The, The Bible was written, especially, particularly the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to relay historical facts about a real man who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy of a king who would rescue people from their sin. Matthew wrote this Gospel so as to say, these are the facts, and these facts demand a response. This is what happened in Jesus' life. These are the things that he did. This is what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. And this is what Jesus did. So put the pieces together, Matthew is saying. At the end of the day, as we read even just these first few verses in chapter 11 of Matthew, we understand that in light of this, not just John the Baptist and his disciples, but everyone, including us today, must make a decision about Jesus' identity to accept him, to to trust in him with full faith as Messiah, as King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of our souls, or to reject him, to ignore these facts, to interpret them a different way. But one thing is not an option, and that is indecision. Indecision is is to decide against Christ. Indecision is is a, a precarious place to be in as well. When I was going to uh, seminary in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I would often drive uh, home for summer and for Christmas. And on the drive uh, going back to uh, seminary, um, uh, there was, a, there was a, a difficult intersection that I, or a difficult junction that I always had to navigate. Um, there are two ways. So the, the seminary at the time was not located in San Francisco, but in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, just north across the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, you would think that the quickest way to get there would be to go through San Francisco and across the Golden Gate Bridge to get to the seminary. But that is false. Don't do that. The easier way is to go up north through Oakland and then cross the Richmond Bridge from east to west uh, from Richmond into Marin County and then go down that way. It's cheaper. You cross fewer bridges uh, and it's a whole lot faster. But as you're driving up I-580 north in Oakland, you approach a juncture where Three lanes to the left will take you over uh, the Bay Bridge into San Francisco. 
historic, beautiful downtown San Francisco, or the three lanes to the right will take you uh, toward Richmond and to the Richmond Bridge. If you're not careful, you will take uh, the, the wrong fork, you know, the, the wrong uh, tine on that fork in that intersection. And that is not a mistake that you want to make. Because if you are in the left-hand lane by accident, uh, you will end up going across the Bay Bridge and then adding 45 minutes to an hour of your, uh, to your drive just to get back to where you need to go. So you want to be in the right-hand lanes, okay? But in order to be in the right-hand lanes, you got to think about it before you get there because traffic moves fast and the intersection comes fast. And you don't have the luxury of sitting in the middle of the intersection trying to decide which way you're going to go as cars are going 65, 70 miles an hour on either side of you. You've got to know where you're going. You've got to be decisive. And when you commit to a decision, you've got to commit to it. If you sit in the middle of traffic trying to decide which one to take, right, you're going to get creamed from behind and you're just going to be obliterated on the California highway. The same is true with Jesus. You can't sit at a fork in the road with your decision about Christ. You've got to decide one way or the other. And not to decide is to decide against him. Who is Jesus? Well, all of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. What about John the Baptist? Who is John? Let's look at verses 7 through 15. As they went away, that is John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who is this John? Well, in verses 7 through 10, Jesus gives some indications, some pointing to John's identity and his role, who John is and what it is that he's supposed to do. Jesus asks them in verses 7 and verse 8, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind in the wilderness when he went to go see John? Did you go out to see a man, a man dressed in soft clothes? No, he says, right, using a rhetorical question here to point out the fact that John was not someone who vacillated between the opinions of human beings like a reed in the wind. John wasn't a windsock. He was a, he was a silo in the wilderness. John wasn't also a man in soft clothes. He wasn't part of the, uh, arist he wasn't an arist arist aristocratic dignitary. I'll get it out. He wasn't a man who, who played to the egos of influential people. He didn't wear soft clothes. He wore a, a cloak of camel's skin. And he ate locusts and wild honey, for crying out loud. What did you go see? He asks again in verses 9 and 10. Did you go to see a prophet? Yeah, you better believe you did. A prophet and a whole lot more. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is not just any messenger from the Lord. Yes, he is a prophet with a word from the Lord, but he's a specific prophet. He is the one of whom Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3.1 is about John the Baptist. When we read these verses in 9 and 10 about what Jesus says about John the Baptist, when we read this in conjunction with verses 13 and 14, right? For all the prophets and the law prophesied about 
uh, prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. We find that not only is Malachi 3.1 fulfilled in John the Baptist, but also Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 is fulfilled in John. Malachi 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, this is a tricky prophecy for Israel to interpret in their day. They, some many thought that Elijah the prophet was literally going to come back and prepare the way for the Messiah. You'll find if you have Jewish friends that celebrate Passover, they will often uh, at the Passover Seder set a, an extra place at the table that no one will sit at for Elijah in case he comes back. But Jesus is saying, right, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah. He is saying that the prophecy, Malachi 4, verse 5, is not about literal Elijah, but someone who will come in the spirit of Elijah, someone who will come with brashness and boldness and conviction like Elijah the prophet. So also in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, we we read this little, little tidbit. The disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come before, that is, before the Messiah comes, before the kingdom comes? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Just as much was told about who John the Baptist would be, even to his father, Zechariah, when his wife, Elizabeth, was pregnant with John. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, a messenger from the Lord, an angel says this to Zechariah, he will go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Who is John? He is the disciple or the, the, the prophet who is to come who is to prepare the way for the Messiah, rolling out the red carpet for the king of kings to come on the scene. And in light of who he is, Jesus, in verse 11, praises John. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is never arisen one who is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than he. Now, John the Baptist would die before the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, was fully inaugurated in Christ's death and in his resurrection. John was merely a forerunner, a preparer for the kingdom, right? One who rolls out the red carpet for the king. But John comes from a different age. He comes from the age before the kingdom of heaven. And in this earthly life, John would never see the kingdom come in its fullness. Jesus says John is great, though. Why is he great? Because John is serving as part of this kingdom transition team. Okay? We just uh, uh, last fall elected a new president, and he has since taken office. And in the weeks between the election and the inauguration, we heard a lot about the transition team. Right? The transition team is composed of people from two different parties, some from the old outgoing administration and those from the new incoming administration. And the ones from the outgoing administration stay along afterward to orient and help train and get ready those that are coming with the, uh, with the new administration so that they can be ready to work on day one. But, but once the new administration takes, takes office, uh, once the new president is inaugurated, the, the old people on the transition team, they, they find their way out, right? There's not a, they're, 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 they're no, their services are no longer needed there. In the same way, so is John the Baptist, part of this kingdom transition team, but from the old, from the old covenant to the new, right? He is, he is ushering in the, the, the new administration, the new kingdom of Christ that will come, but he won't see it fully and he won't participate, it, uh, participate in it fully 
Jesus says John the Baptist is great because he fulfills this role. He's the, he's the last of that administration that helps to roll in the new one. And then Jesus turns and says, but, but greater still is the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven. The smallest, the most humble, the most meek, the most lowly of servants in the kingdom of heaven, in the new, inaugur- in the new administration, is greater even than John the Baptist. That's how great the new kingdom is. That's how great the coming kingdom is, is that even the most humble, the most lowly of servants there is greater even than John the Baptist. But coming kingdoms, new kingdoms, always divide and always set people in conflict. Verse 12 of chapter 11, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent take it by force. John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. And Jesus comes after John to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. As king, he is proclaiming, I'm here, I've come, here's my kingdom. But in John's arrest, in being arrested by Herod, in the, in the malevolence and in the plotting and scheming of the scribes and Pharisees toward Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus is suffering violence by those who are opposed to it. And those who are opposed to it are doing everything they can to take the kingdom away by force, to keep it from coming. Who is John? John is this prophet in the spirit of Elijah who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And his work in testimony, in conjunction with the testimony of Scripture, of the Old Testament Scripture from Malachi, which speaks about John, is proven by Jesus to be a trustworthy source of information about the Savior. John's message can be trusted because the Old Testament spoke of him and he's fulfilling it. We have, though, in this day and age, not just John the Baptist and his testimony. Not just the Old Testament, but we also have the New Testament, right? Which is based upon the eyewitnesses of uh, the events of Christ's ministry and even of his death and resurrection. Those in Jesus' day had the Old Testament, they had John, they had the evidence of the things that Jesus was doing. But we today have the Old Testament, we have John, we have the evidence of the works that Jesus did, we have the whole of the New Testament, which is based upon eyewitness accounts of the things that were going on. We have trustworthy sources about who Jesus is, John included among them. So as we've just seen from verses 1 through 6, that knowing who Jesus is demands a response from every person, you can know today that you are able to base your decision about Jesus upon trustworthy sources. Scripture is a trustworthy source on which to base your decision about who Jesus is. These are facts. These are not not pretensions. These are not uh, fables. These are not fairy tales or legends. These are facts about the God who created the universe and what he has done to save us. We've heard a lot in the news recently about so-called alternative facts, right? Um, I don't know what an alternative fact is. Uh, there are facts, and then there are falsehoods, right? Uh, or or to, to use a stronger word, uh, there are lies, okay? Uh, but there are not alternative facts. Now, there, while there are a set of facts and maybe multiple ways you can interpret those facts or spin those facts, you can't just make up new facts, okay? So there are facts and there are falsehoods. Don't base your decision about Christ on alternative facts, like the Da Vinci Code. The, that's an archaic reference, right? Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, these strange things that kind of pop up, seem to pop up out of nowhere that tell a different story about Jesus. Those are alternative facts about Jesus. Let me put it a different way. Those are falsehoods about Jesus. Those are lies about Jesus. You want the truth about Jesus? You want a trustworthy source about who Jesus is and what he came to do and who he really was and all of that? Here's here's your source book right here. 
There are among antiquity no literary uh, compilations as reliable and trustworthy, even just from a literary standpoint and transmission standpoint, as that of Scripture. It stands alone as a trustworthy text, period, that has remained relatively unadulterated over the last 3,500 years during which it has been composed and used. It is a trustworthy text, and the facts within it are trustworthy as well. So when you think about what you're going to do with Jesus, think about what John would do with Jesus and what believers over the last 2,000 years have been doing with Jesus, basing their decision on trustworthy facts in Scripture. So who is Jesus? All evidence points to the fact that he is the Messiah. Who is John? He's the one as a trustworthy source that comes to pave the way for the Messiah, to prepare people to receive the Messiah. And then in verses 16 through 24, we're confronted with a question, who are you? Jesus says, but what, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Oof. In verses 16 and 19, Jesus tells a little parable, a little story that that helps us to understand the hearts of sinful people. And he uses this illustration of children playing in the street, calling out to their friends, hey, we played a song for you, you didn't dance, so we played a funeral dirge for you and you didn't mourn. He does this so as to show that the, the children of the parable are like the people of Israel, most specifically the rulers of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. We know that the Jewish rulers rejected John the Baptist because, as they said, he was demonically melancholy. The dude was so sad, he had to be possessed. Right? John the Baptist came like a funeral dirge. He's wearing camel's hair, and he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's living out in the wilderness, and he's telling people, be sorry for your sin. Repent of your sin because the king is coming, and you don't want to be against the king when he comes. John was a bit of a recluse. He was way out of the mainstream, and for that he was reviled and hated by the Jewish ruling elite. So then someone comes in the exact opposite way as John. His name happens to be Jesus. And the Jewish, Jewish rulers reject Jesus because, not because he's demonically melancholy, not because he's so somber he's got to be possessed, but they reject Jesus because he seems to be celebrating sinners. Unlike John, Jesus didn't remove himself from society. No, he dove in head first. He's often seen, and we've seen already in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sitting and eating with sinners and tax collectors as he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And for this, he's called a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The point of the parable that Jesus tells is that sinners who are happy in their sin will never see things for what they really are. Okay, the wise person, the person who has understanding, dances when a happy song is played. And a wise person mourns when a sad song is played because they understand the reason for the song. 
Similarly, the wise man sees the somber John in the Jordan, and he knows that he is pointing to a coming Messiah and the need for repentance, and he mourns his sin, and he turns from it in hopeful expectation of the coming king. And then when King Jesus arrives, the wise man sees the advent of the true king and rejoices in his coming. Wise man knows the meaning of the song. So when we look at John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, we ought not see them as opposites or as those that are competing or, or giving a competing message, right? It's two parts of the same message. The king is coming. Repent of your sin. The king is here. Hallelujah. Praise him. Then Jesus gives a warning for those who continue to, even though they've seen the evidence, walk in unrepentance from their sin. He calls out a warning. He calls out woe against Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum all of which were cities in the region of Galilee where Jesus was spending the majority of his ministry. Capernaum, as we've seen before, was Jesus' adopted hometown during his earthly ministry. He was born in Nazareth, but uh, during the three years of his ministry, he lived in Capernaum, in Peter's house. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, cities that were well known in the Old Testament for their wanton paganism and immorality. Cities that were, uh, that, that were prophesied against by the prophets in the Old Testament and, and which were the recipients of God's judgment for their, for their gross immorality. They're famous for how, how far they had fallen. Jesus claims that if the works that he had done in the cities of his day, in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, if the people in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had seen the things that Jesus was doing in the cities of his day, they would have repented of their sin at the snap of a finger. Jesus has done all of these things in these cities in which he's been going through. And the cities have not turned, they've not repented, they've continued in walking in rebellion against Christ. Because Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum had seen the works that Christ did and rejected him, they would be judged all the more harshly for having seen the king face to face and continued in their rebellion. In light of all the evidence from Scripture then, from John's testimony, from Jesus' own ministry and the, and the evidence of, of the things that he did, we see that a, a denial of Jesus' identity as Messiah is especially damning. To see the king, to see his works, to have the evidence in front of your face and to decide against him is especially damning. This is a sober word and a sober call to repentance for all people who are reading this passage today. Friend, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ, know today that your decision about Jesus affects more than just this life. Jesus says as much. He says, on the day of judgment, it will, be, it will be an easier day of judgment for Sodom of all cities than for the cities in which Jesus performed all of his works, all of his deeds, uh, and for those who continue to walk in unrepentance. Yeah. To see the evidence of Jesus and then to continue to deny it is, is perhaps one of the most foolish acts you could ever commit in your life. It is, it is on par with standing in a road and looking down and seeing two parallel steel beams on either side of you this way, looking up and seeing a light in the distance and, and maybe a puff of, of, of steam and a, a large metal uh, object rolling toward you on those parallel beams at a quick speed and to do nothing. It is to stand on railroad tracks with a train barreling down on you and to say, eh, I'll be all right. That's what it is to see all of the evidence of Christ and to still say no. 
It's foolish. It's silly. Don't do it. God has made a way for you to not be in that situation. And by God's grace, those of us who know Christ are able to interpret the evidence rightly and to say, brother, sister, get off that train track. By God's grace, he has shown us the reality of our sin and where we stand in the path of the oncoming train of God's wrath. But he has also shown us that he has made a way for us to to escape his wrath and his punishment by trusting in his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the one who comes to rescue us from our sin. So, brother, sister, if you don't know Jesus today, understand that you are standing on the train track with the oncoming train of God's wrath barreling down on you for all of your sin, and rightfully so. He is a good and a just judge, but he's also a gracious and a merciful God who has made a way for you to escape his wrath by finding refuge in his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, those of us who know Christ or walking in Christ, who have seen the evidence and done the right thing, we have fled the oncoming train to take refuge in Jesus. How much more then do we have obligation to yell and scream and shout and push our other friends and family members off of those train tracks that they might see the reality of Christ and respond to him in faith? Your decision about Jesus affects more than this life. It affects your eternal destination. So don't make this decision lightly or flippantly. Don't walk away from the evidence without considering it fully. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Who is John? He's the one who comes to prepare the way. Who are you? Well, you are one that that Christ has come to save by his death on the cross and resurrection in uh, your place that you might not incur the full force of God's wrath for your sin. And you've got to make a decision about it. The final question that we're, I think, posed with here in verses 25 through 30 is this. What burden then do you carry? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Son, uh, excuse me, no one knows the, uh, let me try that again, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. I think we're challenged to see in these verses that the burdens that we carry are ultimately a function of what we know and who we serve. Our burdens are a, are a function, are a, are a product of what we know and who we serve. Who do we know? Verses 25 and 26, we see that that God reveals heavenly knowledge about himself to those who are humble in spirit. Jesus declares here his gratitude that it was God's good will, God's good desire to reveal the kingdom to those who are humble and willing to receive it. Just as the Father has actively revealed it to the humble, he also actively hides it from the proud presuming that the proud person might would use that knowledge only to bolster his or her pride about how much they know. Consider it this way. If you have a rich man who has a whole lot of money and he's gained all of his money by defrauding the poor and stealing from people, are you going to give that man more money? Trusting he'll do the right thing with it? But if you have a poor man who is poor because everything that he has been given, he has given to others. Everything that he has, he has given for the care of those who are worse off than him. Can you trust that man with a dollar? You better believe you can. 
The same is true of those who are humble in spirit, who are poor in spirit, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. When you are poor in spirit and you realize that you have nothing in your pocket to give to a holy God in heaven, you're in a good place. Because it's to humble people like that to whom God reveals his grace. Why? Because humble people who know their position before a holy God can be trusted to do the right thing with the good news of salvation. But brother, sister, if you are proud in the fact that you don't know Jesus, if you are proud in your agnosticism, proud in your atheism, understand that until you are humbled in spirit, you are not in a place to receive the gospel. So then do work to humble yourself in spirit that you might be able to receive what God has given to us in Christ. We see that God reveals heavenly knowledge to the humble. We also see in verse 27, the son's relationship to the father. First, the father gives all authority to the son. This is verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by the father, by my father. This is corroborated for us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, when Jesus, before ascending into heaven, says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. We also find out that only the Father perfectly knows the Son. Only God the Father perfectly knows God the Son. And then thirdly, we see that only the Son perfectly knows God the Father and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Catch this. The Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God can make the Father known, can reveal knowledge of God, place people into fellowship with God, anyone that he chooses to do so with. Anyone. Because he has all authority. Praise God. That's awesome that we can know the Father. We can know the creator of our universe, of our bodies, of our souls. We can know the creator of all things because Jesus has revealed him. That's an awesome word to us today. Our burden is a function of what we know and whom we serve. God reveals knowledge of himself to us through his word and through his son. And in knowing those things, we have a choice to serve his son, to serve the king. And when we do that, our yoke, our burden changes dramatically. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, take upon you this yoke of faith. Take upon you my burden of discipleship. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Who's he speaking to here? Is he speaking to blue-collar workers who literally carry loads on them? No, not really. Jesus is speaking of those who, are labor, those who labor and are heavy laden in a spiritual sense. These are the crowds of people who he has seen as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, like in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. In Matthew 23, 1 through 4, we have another insight into uh, how Jesus views the crowds that are following him and what they are oppressed by. He says there in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That is, they sit in the place of those who rule over and govern Israel. He says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, right? Uh, respect the office, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus says, instead, take my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is? Not Y-O-L-K, not the yellow stuff in the middle of the egg, but Y-O-K-E, this wooden beam that joins two animals together for cooperative work in a field to pull a plow or to pull a cart. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. This is that which joins us to Christ. Right? We are united to Christ. We are joined to Christ by faith, by trusting in him, that he is who the Bible says he is, that he does what the Bible says he will do. 
And Christ's yoke of faith stands over and against the yoke of the Pharisees' extreme regulatory impositions of the Old Testament law. Christ does not undo the law. He fulfills it. He fulfills it in its truest sense. How does Jesus sum up all of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do those two things perfectly, you fulfill the law perfectly. Problem is, friend, none of us have ever loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength concurrently and loved our neighbor as ourselves concurrently. We fail in those all the time, every single day. Not a one of us has ever fulfilled the law, can we ever fu- or, nor can we ever fulfill the law. Because you break the law once and you've broken it forever. But praise God that Jesus, his son, lived a perfect sinless life and fulfilled the law perfectly in its truest sense so that we can be joined to him by faith and learn from him. Not to be joined to the Pharisees or to legalistic regulations, be joined to, to things that we can never hope to fulfill, but we can, we can be joined to one who has already fulfilled it and who can show us the way to walk in holiness and sanctification, growing in closeness with God. His yoke is a yoke of faith. His burden is a, is a far lighter burden than the burden that the Pharisees would put on the people. Those who would learn from the Pharisees had the burden of the Pharisees' harshness and legalism. They had the burden of a law that they could never perfectly keep. But Christ is a gentle and a humble teacher. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me. He's a teacher who knows our frailties. He's a teacher who, who doesn't place the heel of his boot down on our necks, but instead he lifts us up from our slavery to sin and lifts us up from our separation from God and places our souls at rest with our creator and at rest in the world. The gospel of Jesus, to to borrow phrase from Matt Chandler, the gospel of Jesus is not do more for yourself. It's not lift yourself up by your bootstraps. The gospel of Jesus is not do this, not that. It's not fix your own addictions. It's not fix your own marriage. It's not raise yourself from death. The gospel of Jesus is that you can't fix anything. You can't resurrect anything, but Jesus can. Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, has died on the cross for your sin and for mine. And he's been raised from the dead so that by faith in him, by yoking up with Jesus, by trusting in him and the direction that he will take and will lead you, your soul can have rest with God and in this world. No longer are you standing in the path of the oncoming train of God's wrath, but now you are yoked to a savior who has taken the brunt of that wrath for you that you might escape it because of your faith in him. The burden as a result that we carry in this life is far lighter than what we carried before when we were walking in our sin. Friend, today, whether you're a believer or you're not yet a Christian, trust Jesus today because he gives rest for your soul. Friend, you who are a believer, you may be struggling with chronic illness or disease or bodily frailty. You may be struggling financially. You may be struggling in your marriage. There's a lot of things that cause you unrest in this world, but trust in Jesus that you might have rest for your soul and in this world. Friend, today, you you may not be a believer. You need to trust in Christ today that you can have rest not just today, but for eternity in knowing that the God who has created and fashioned you knows you perfectly and you are in perfect fellowship with him, a fellowship that none can separate. Trust Jesus for that today. This is a kind of rest that, that the... Uh, of which there is no comparison in this world. I've rested once in my life really, really well. And it was when we were living in uh, Hawaii back in 2010, 2011. 
And if you've ever spent time in Hawaii around New Year's, you know that uh, the people of Hawaii go nuts at New Year's. Households will spend thousands of dollars apiece on fireworks in Hawaii for New Year's. That's how crazy it is. So we went uh, during New Year's uh, of 2010-11. We went to a friend's house to celebrate New Year's because he's like, oh yeah, you got to come. Everybody on my street goes crazy and, and it'll be a good time. Well, Nikki and I were in ministry with college students at the time and we were just like exhausted that week. And uh, so we got to my friend's house. We went to bed early at like 10 o'clock thinking when World War III erupts outside in the streets, we'll wake up and we'll kiss each other and say happy New Year and we'll celebrate, right? I was so tired, I slept through New Year's Eve in Hawaii of all places, where people are setting off strings of tens of thousands of firecrackers in the driveway outside the house where we're sleeping, and I slept right through it. Nikki was like smacking me on the face at midnight, you know, wake up, happy new year, right? Trying to kiss me, and I'm like, (laughs) slept right through it. I don't remember a bit of it. That was the best rest I've ever had in my life. And friend, that doesn't compare to the rest that Christ offers when you trust in him for your, for, with, your, with your soul. Amen. Not just rest today to, to, to endure, to sleep in the eye of a hurricane, to sleep through World War III if it were to happen outside your world. That's the kind of rest he gives for your soul today. And he gives you that kind of rest in eternity when we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Friend, there's hope and there's comfort and peace in knowing Jesus this way. Trust Jesus this way today. Whether you need to do it afresh and anew, you need to repent of the sin of unbelief, of not trusting Jesus, right? And you need to to begin walking in a new relationship or walking in your relationship with Christ again. Or whether you've never trusted Jesus before and you know today God is tugging at your heart saying, saying, brother, sister, believe this. Son, daughter, hear this today. I want to give you rest for your souls. I want to save you from your sins. Trust my son. I'm going to pray, and as I do, the praise team is going to make their way back to the stage. They're going to lead us in a song of response this morning. I invite you to respond however the way, however uh, the Lord is leading you this morning. If you need to come forward, you want to give your life to Christ today, trust him for the first time to save you from your sins, I'll be here. Pastor Bruce will be here to, to greet you, to counsel with you in that. If you just need to take some time at your seat, kneel at your seat where you are in prayer, asking God to help you walk in repentance, right? Walk in, in Christ-likeness in your life to, to re-yoke up with Christ again. Do that in your seat where you are today. Whatever you do, don't leave here this morning not finding rest in Jesus Christ, the King who has come. Don't be scandalized by his coming. Don't be offended. Instead, embrace him wholeheartedly as King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who saved your soul. Let's pray.